So I've kind of just continually done what I've done. I invest in assets that I feel have strong product market fit and can appeal to consumers in Web2 markets and can kind of bridge the two markets together. And, you know, in five years, if we have to go through regulatory trials, tribulations and and other things, then, you know, so be it. You know, you can't stop people making products that are beneficial for consumers and you can't stop investors investing in these, showing that these products will change the way that we operate in our daily lives. Right. What is up, everyone? Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. I'm your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to another epic episode of the Charlie Shrem Show powered by Untold Stories, where twice a week together, you and I get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, brilliant people, some early Bitcoin OGs, those who have been like silently working in the background, those who can teach us a lot of like life lessons about themselves, how they became successful in one of the hardest industries right now to become successful, right? Like a lot of the times it requires us to, it's like following our dreams and doing something that we know is right, but we don't really understand why we're doing it half the time. And maybe together with the show, we we understand how this movement came to be, where we are right now and, and where we're going in the future. We have a lot of fun along the way. We'll meet some amazing people. And today you're going to meet an awesome person who I met on Twitter, which is still an awesome place to meet people and to get shit done, right? But my my guest today is Max Serafin. Max, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really excited to be here. It's a, it's a great show you have going on. Thank you. I just, I, I missed it. I, I forget how much I love to do it. Living on a film set for a week, my wife's an actor, so she got cast as like a very uh, good lead in, a, in like a Hallmark movie. And I love Hallmark movies. Do you like Hallmark movies? watch them during christmas <laughs> about it but, yeah that's but. what everyone says <laughs> but i can't figure out what i love more like watching them shoot a hallmark movie or like actually watching the hallmark movie when it comes out they always like have really good endings and and things like that but it was really sweet i was living on set for like the last two three weeks i got a few shows in here and there but it's good to be back home in the chair i spent so much of my full time on working on bitcoin and crypto that it's like when you're on a film set, it makes your creative juices just, just, just pump. Have you ever been on a film set? I haven't. Uh, well, actually, no. I went on the. Uh, you've heard of like Red Zone for football. I've been on the. Oh, yeah. yeah, I put on that in 2012. I think that was a, that was a fun time. Wait, I didn't know Red Zone was like. Uh, like I thought Red Zone was just when they take all the screens. So they, they have a, they have a full production studio. Actually, it's it's pretty crazy. They have the back room with all the people on the computers who are sending all the clips at the same time to. Uh, I can't I can't remember his name, but, uh, you know, the 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 actual host of the show. So it's it's, it's a pretty crazy film set they have going on. NFL Red Zone is for those who don't know, when you watch the, the NFL Red Zone, you have maybe 10 games going on at any given time, especially during like a, a sports weekend. What this channel does is it for somehow shows you in real time the best of all 10 games, what's going on. So instead of needing to keep 10 screens open. They somehow figure out, I don't know what AI they're using or what type of you know, technology they're using to do that. But now I understand. It sounds like it's a lot of manpower. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like 10, 15 people in a back room trying to make sure they get, a, get it switched right at the right time. It's, uh, it's pretty spectacular to watch from a backside. Yeah, right. It, it's like same thing as being on a film set. It's kind of similar to crypto in a way, right? Because there's so much going on at any given moment that your job and my job, because we do some, you know, we're both in, in, I'll give a little bit of introduction about you in, in a second, but we all, almost always have to like 
manage all the data coming in in real time, realize what's good and what's bad, and make very, very important decisions based on that. Just to give a little bit of background of you, you're known as a scruffer on Twitter, and that's how we met, S-C-R-U-F-F-U-R. You have a VC fund called Impatient Ventures, where you impatiently invest in the long term. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about that. You also have a consulting business and have been investing in this industry for a little under 10 years now. So you've been one of those people, very quiet until, until 2016. And, and like you were telling me that you enjoyed listening to the show beforehand, I really enjoyed, really, really enjoyed because I'm like a token economics geek. I really enjoyed going, going to some of your older blog posts where you posted like some of your perfect you know, uh, token economic models like the mushroom one, and then you had one on, on the cereal club. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the most emphasized parts of Web3 is kind of understanding the tokenomic model. You know, we have the separation of equity and tokens, which is still trying to find its way in regulation standards today. But the big problem that I like to emphasize on, which I saw keen in 2016, 2017, was looking at tokens outside of a respect for turning them into fiat, which is kind of the consensus today, where most of the consumers who are purchasing and using these tokens maximize their utility by selling the tokens, which honestly isn't good for ecosystems. And it's a problem where tokenomic model uh, mathematicians and other people have failed to create game theory to where people are incentivized to keep tokens inside the ecosystem. So what I found with, with my consulting practice and helping various projects out and doing research was we can use all sorts of traditional economics across micro and the macro basis and build out entire models, which allow users to collect tokens without going in excess and continually use these tokens to engage in the ecosystem rather than flowing the tokens out. That's kind of where my where I've become rather known for is, is understanding these tokenomics that are built by others and building my own and trying to find value in these tokens outside of an equity valuation standpoint, but rather, you know, is this tokenomic model valuable in the long term? And does it produce situations where consumers aren't getting excess tokens and pulling them out of the ecosystem? We can find value in that. It almost seems like an impossible task. It almost seems like I've sat on like different meetings where token economics are developed. And it still seems like one of those things where you do your best guesstimate of like how you think things can go. Because like you talk about, a lot of it is game theory. And I think to zoom out on the macro level, right? The the Federal Reserve is almost treating the dollar like a token right now, yep. where they're like doing these, manipulating these lever systems and reading all this data. And then what they're doing is they're like trying to affect the inflation rate to change the value of our dollars in a way and the purchasing power of that. How is that different from token economics? It's similar in in a lot of ways, honestly. I mean, the Fed. Yeah, it's funny. It is. You know, in this crypto world, we're used to it, but now the rest of the world has to deal with the Federal Reserve. They're hearing about the Fed, the Fed CPI. Ever, what's the rate? Like, like it's in our brains now. Everyone, everyone. Like, you speak to anyone on the street right now. It's like the easiest conversation to strike up. But for us in Bitcoin and crypto land, we're used to it because we've been dealing with token economics for a better part of a decade. Yeah, you honestly hit the nail on the head. I never thought about it very similarly to how a team's job is very similar to the Fed's job. I mean, you know, in a simple standpoint, the Fed 
is tasked with aiming consumers to incentivize them to spend or incentivizing them to save on, you know, very simply outside of the complex situations they do. In the same way, projects should be working on different ways that they can incentivize users to either continuously spend their tokens in the ecosystem or to save them. It, it works in both ways. But the, the big problem is the Fed has hundreds of years of data. And these people who are creating tokenomics often don't know what their consumers are going to do, often don't know how their consumers utility their or maximize their utility. So they're tasked with creating these tokenomics and they don't really have access to good data. And we can circle back to what you mentioned right at the start of the show. You said you have good and bad data. And it's really hard right now because you have tons of different software and analytic tools that you can use to maximize your efficiency in either building, trading, et cetera. But the problem is you don't know what good data is and bad data is. And I struggle with that as well when I build these tokenomic models. It's hard to differentiate. One of the biggest metrics that anyone can look at when they're strategizing on whether to work for, buy tokens in, just hang out in the Discord channel or like stake their identity to a project. You know what I mean? Like when you become like a lover of a project or a token and you want to, whether it's like do one of those things, one of the biggest metrics is looking at their token economics, right? You, but people don't really understand that. What I guess metrics can can people look for just kind of like go to coin market cap and look at this or go to their ether scan and look at this maybe it's like what's their total outstanding supply versus how much is currently in the market right now right there's all these different little things that you can look for yeah simply put as a trader or someone investing that the simplest measure is looking at the distribution so a lot of these VC-backed projects, even the ones that are kind of fair launched, they will always have some sort of tokenomics that are publicly available that show their outflows, how much is being distributed per month, when the unlocks are. And you see that across CT. A lot of more intermediate or advanced traders use these to make very simple shortcut scalps and trades. Yep. If they see maybe, let's, let's use an example, it's not happening, but at an arbitrary standpoint, let's say Uniswap has an unlock in two months. And you see that 15% of the tokens are unlocking for VCs, for airdrops, for consumers, et cetera. So you know that these tokens are going to be rightfully available right away. A lot of the times these VCs have had money locked up for two, three years, right? So you see this 15% unlock as a way to start getting their liquidity back. Well, the traders will see this and they'll say, well, we're going to assume that X amount of this 15% is going to enter the market right away so people can get liquidity, thus leading to you know drastic volatile price drops, which they can take advantage of by either shorting or relonging when it hits uh, a certain price drop that seems volatile to them. It's, you know, it's kind of an arbitrary process at times other than using technical analysis to kind of gauge where you're going to buy and sell. But they'll use that. On more of an advanced level, though, you can look at these tokenomics and see does this have a sustainable path forward? Mm. So very mainstream, we're, we're looking at the play to earn standpoint in 2021. There was that Philippines-based game, Axie Infinity, that went crazy for a while. The price was just going nuts. And while the price was going up, all of these farmers and, and people with bots and computers were playing the Axie Infinity game to earn real money and wages across the year. And at a certain price point, you know, these these farmers across different countries were making 80 to 100K per profile they're doing with the bot. Now, yeah. in real time mainstream, it looks great. You're like, wow, people can earn real wages in these games. But in a tokenomic standpoint, it looks like a complete disaster. You have continuously these tokens flowing in and in and or outside and out and out of the ecosystem that 
you know, the only thing that these people are tasked with is to make the most money possible. And the only problem with that is over the course of years, sustainability standpoint, there's not enough liquidity to, su- to support the money that is constantly flowing out of the ecosystem. So that's how I would look at it as advanced level is not just the metrics on the screen, but rather, you know, what people are doing, what's being reported, what's the distributions on this daily standpoint of what this leaves to the to the naked eye. Now, it's hard to really predict, you know, what price it's going to top at and then crumble down. But Axie yeah. Infinity is like the perfect example. The chart went up and up and up, and then it's just dead now. You know, you can't even make a real wage off the game. There's so much game theory that's involved in this, too, because I just I had a heated discussion with someone. It's funny, not even like on a podcast, just on the film set, actually. <laughs> Out of all places, I'm debating ETH staking on a film set. So I I have this like little bit of a belief that the price of ETH and the staking is priced it. So like there's a lot of ETH that was sent over to the beacon chain before the merge in, in November. And most of us here, if you're a Bitcoin holder, you're probably holding some ETH too, whether you're not, it's like the second, but it's been around the second longest. So you can't ignore the elephant in the room. And there's this huge like event coming up where everyone who staked their ETH on that beacon chain can unlock it through, I think, the Shanghai fork that's coming up. A lot of people are saying, well, I don't want to buy ETH until that's, that happens because how much of it is going to unlock and then people can then sell it. But then at the same time, do you think that the that, that in and of itself is because it's like a 24-hour market that all of this is all priced in already almost? And the only thing that's not priced in in crypto are black swan events. Yeah, I like the term priced in here. I like to think about it a little differently. ETH staking was around the time that ETH price was well above 2000. I can't remember the exact price, but I knew though, I was looking at some data sets a while ago because I was curious. I was curious about the unlocks. And the main thing for me that I looked at is if the majority of stakers have their staked ETH at a price point over what it is today, then the incentive to sell when it unlocks is rather low because they would just be taking a loss on the money that they have locked up. So I'd like to think of it as it's, you know, it's a hard metric to look at because we have to assume that these people aren't just going to sell for a loss and they have a conviction in the asset in the long term, which is somewhat safe to assume if they staked it, especially not just staking, you know, USDC, which is just stable. So they'd be just getting USDC back, but now they're getting ETH rewards, which I would assume that they have conviction in the long term of the asset going up. So I, I like to think about it in two ways. So that once again, it's one, I think that they're not going to sell their ETH until the price is, you know, at least well above their original stake price. Yeah. And two, since they staked the asset for a period of time where it was unable to be withdrawn and liquidity was taken for months on end with the lockup, then once again, that kind of revalidates the conviction that they have in the asset. So personally, I think it's a non-event. Don't forget Rocket Pool and also Lido. Like right. if you want, you, you could have like staked with the intention of having liquidity. So you could have like, it's like the difference where someone buys like treasury bonds that you can't sell them until the end of the maturity, or you can buy a bond that is sellable at any given time. And I'm not really into buying bonds, but I know that that's true. Yeah, liquid staking is honestly probably the coolest abstract concept I've seen in Web3. Now it's becoming a lot more usable since we've seen the secs going after gemini and other kind of centralized liquidity or sorry centralized uh uh, rewards and lenders etc so now how are you i know that you've been around the you know yeah so the sec is definitely like cracked down on staking although it's 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 relegated to like uh 
it seems like centralized staking services, maybe that was like the message that they were trying to make, but I don't waste my time reading through yeah. all the, the paperwork that they put out. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates. I've been following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs. They're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges that we all are gonna face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are gonna love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. How do you factor in regulations into your investing, right? You mentioned play to earn and Ethereum we're talking about and Bitcoin. Well, these are kind of projects that are anything in gaming and play to earn are kind of like outside of the, the regulatory scope because they're because those are already in crypto land, if you will. What about, are you pausing investing on projects that you see could have regulatory implications in the future? Yeah, I, that's kind of one of my main risk factors is mm. when I look at things as either an angel investor or looking at things for a VC, I like to look at the token and seeing in a very simple test. One is a pass the Howey test, which mm. is simple in its own regard, but yeah, it is know, simple. It, right. <laughs> simple, right. <laughs> but it's funny in the recent SEC, it's, I talk about not reading. I did read this one, the SEC filing for, um, I forget which project it was that they were suing or doing something, but they referenced the Howey test in their own filing. They're like running through it in their filing too. Yeah. I, I mean, thought that was kind of funny. What what kind of contradicts my, my looking at the Howey test is looking at, so the SEC is going after Paxos, which is the BUSD issuer. And they're saying BUSD was a security, which is just a stable coin. And a Howey test on a BUSD stable coin is, you know, BUSD isn't going to go up in value. It isn't going to bring investors money. And right there it fails. So how yeah. are you going to say that BUSD is a, sta- is, is a security? So that, I mean, it references back because I like to look at these assets and be like, does it pass the Howey test? But seeing the SEC going after an asset that is clearly does not pass the Howey test, I'm like, how do I look at this from an investor standpoint? Yes. There's no regulation that that is a clear cut and precise that I can use as as to be risk adverse, right? So it's, I mean, to answer your question back then, you know, it's hard to look at assets and say, you know, are we sure that regulators aren't going to go after this? So I've kind of just continually done what I've done. I invest in assets that I feel have strong product market fit and can appeal to consumers in Web2 markets and can yes. kind of bridge the two markets together. 
And, you know, in five years, if we have to go through regulatory trials, tribulations and, and other things, then, you know, so be it. Uh, you know, pro you can't stop people making products that are beneficial for consumers. And you can't stop investors investing in these, showing that these products will change the way that we operate in our daily lives. So, you know, I think mm. that the SEC and regulators will see this as a beneficial market once we get clear cut, concise regulation standards. And the market will be much easier to invest in as a long term investor. But you're 100 percent right. It's hard. Very, very interesting. And and what about projects that are building new technologies that could potentially compete with the big ones? For example, we had Olive Zero on the show before, and you're an investor in them. Now, how do you uh, think about that one? So there's a lot of complex technological language when we're looking at Olive Zero, who's involved like zero knowledge proof, zero knowledge snarks, and going into that would take up the whole show. So, I mean, to think about it on a very simple standpoint, Aleph Zero is building a layer one technology that's suitable for enterprise. When you look at Ethereum, you look at a, a network that has scalability problems. And if you put, you know, let's say a billion consumers on the ETH network, it would be so congested that no one would be able to purchase or pay for a transaction to go through. Now, that could change in the future. They can adjust the technology, but at the moment, Scalable chains are what enterprises are looking for to be able to bring their consumers on and be able to use this technology without having to financially outcast their current market. So I like to look at Aleph Zero, which is kind of similar to how Matic operates, but on a different standpoint. It's a scalable chain. And the main thing here is it has a public and private blockchain hybrid. So what that means is that consumers can still do their public transactions like how we see on Ethereum. They also have a privacy model similar to Monero, which is a privacy-based blockchain that allows enterprises to be able to use on-chain technology without having to showcase their transactions to the public, which makes it very appealing for an enterprise to be able to build on there. So I look at Aleph Zero for this on a five to 10-year scale because they're able to build out enterprise technology and build meaningful partnerships, very similar to what Matic is doing, which we've seen Matic partner with Instagram and Starbucks and all these yeah. big enterprises. And I think we're still at the really early and kind of getting closer to the rapid adoption of what layer ones can do to partner with enterprise. So Aleph Zero is my like bet on a market cap that is much lower than Matic that I think can do very similar things with partnering with enterprises and being able to connect with consumers and create scalable, safe and private content and uh, on-chain tech for them. A lot of people are still worried that it's still too early to 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 build out something like that and even it's too early to even build anything that can solidly say it's going to be it's going to have a stake in in whatever future web3 is because we don't really understand what the consumer demand is for crypto still like uh, other than buying tokens it's almost like a lot of the times with token economics and game theory i find myself struggling because when we talk to our startups that we're helping accelerate it's like how do you figure out who the perfect like user is or customer is for some of these things right now when you're building out like theoretical technology blockchains? Yeah, the, the problem of good data, bad data uh, will always exist. I like to look at things on a assumption-based and imaginative scale, especially in early startups like this. You know, it's really easy to invest in the FANG top yeah. 500 companies because of all this good data. You know what their consumers are doing. You have 
projections from from a lot of math and, and good data standpoints. But when we're looking at startups, you know, you are just making assumption on an industry, especially in a Web3 base. So I like to look at Airbnb as an example. We really didn't understand how Airbnb and Uber and all these tech would kind of change the way that we use the future. And even some of the top investors in the world passed up on these deals very early on. But now you see them as top conglomerates, as consumer enterprise and, and consumer usability. And this is very relatable to Web3. We don't know how Web3 will actually adjust and be used in enterprise. We can make a lot of assumptions based on what people are building and based on the what the tech can enable users to do. But once again, these are just assumptions on what how the users will actually use them. You know, back in the in the dot-com bust, we had a bunch of websites and a lot of it was too technologically advanced for people to use. So people were making assumptions and eventually it led to the internet where you don't really, you know, you're clicking a button and, but clicking the button, it's very simple, but behind that is lines and lines and lines of code that the normal person will never understand, but the button performs the action. And I think in the future with web three right now, it's still very technologically dense and you have to pass the knowledge barrier to be able to build or do things or understand things. And hopefully my assumption is five to 10 years from now, hopefully sooner, you'll have a web three situation where people don't even know they're using web three. It'll be a Web2 company with Web3 enabled tact. And once again, it'll just be like someone clicking a button. That's like the whole analogy that, you know, we're flying on air on an airplane and we don't really understand how the airplane works, you know, we or we do to a point. And I and I definitely see that becoming becoming the future, but it still makes it difficult to get from from now to then, which is what we're all trying to do at the same time. Yeah. And I don't think there's a perfect I'm way impatient. To do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're impatiently investing in the future. I don't think there's a perfect way to do it. I think you can harness all the good data in the world and you can still be wrong. And it just take a level of imagination of you seeing how the future should be. And um, I'm, you work with startups. I work with startups. The biggest thing that we look at with founders is their ability to pivot because tomorrow is uh, tomorrow's unplanned. We don't know what's going to happen. You could have a major COVID-like event to happen tomorrow, mm. anything, you know, and that's on a kind of a bigger scale, but then you have smaller things that you pivot for too. So I like to look at founder first, product second, is the founder humble and willing to pivot and understands that they'll fail without them even making a mistake? And can they work through that and pivot and make their product right for the current environment? Because it's, you know, it, once again, you have to imagine to plan and, and make a product that you think people will use in five years. But to do that, you have to change with the way the world changes. You have such a wide variety of investments, too. It's not just like in Web3. You've invested in like an oatmeal company, too, a sports card marketplace. So you've been doing this a long time. Like what, how do you have the confidence that you're making the right type of decision? <laughs> so I'll give a lot of credit to Jack. Jack helps run and patient. He was the original founder of it back in 2019, who made a lot of these web two bets. I mean, he is probably one of the most brilliant ex founders slash ex operators who now invests mainly who made a lot of these big bets in web two, I'm more attributed to my web three bets, but the web two bets that we have in patient are incredible. Oats overnight is just a basic CPG oatmeal company that you know, you look at, and it looks like a Kellogg product or very similar. And kind of the secret sauce behind that is the marketing and the brilliant team and founders behind it, you know, that can turn a simple product that is healthy and get it in front of the eyes of every consumer. I think the funniest thing that attributes to my conviction in overnight oats, funny enough, is 
I look at some of their marketing tools and look at the sponsor content. And I look at the comments and the comments are hilarious. Someone's like, fine, fine. I'll purchase it already. Noting to the fact that they've seen this ad probably a hundred plus times. So like, oh my God. I just need to eat it already. <laughs> so, I want to, I want to start a company like overnight oats just for my listeners. Like this would be, can I, can, can you give my listeners some free oatmeal? Like what's the, <laughs> do you have a code? I'm like putting you on the spot, but this is like healthy. I ate oatmeal. Every day in prison, I got jacked. I lost a ton of weight. It was the healthiest I was ever, ever was. I can look into it, see if that's, yeah. uh, that's available. That'd be cool. Get some. My people. editor is going to edit it into this moment, or we're going to put it in the show notes. But, but yeah, we're getting you guys some, some free oatmeal or at least like a. <laughs> well, they can check something. it out at, uh, at oats.com. Funny enough, they have the OG domain of oats.com. It's brilliant. It's oats.com? Yep. That's great. Oh, this is I, your website's awesome. This is great. So, like, I want to start businesses. Like, I don't want to invest in something like that. I want to start them. I like to start them. Our family office is called like Amalgamated Portfolio because we like to like start them and then hand them off to let them be run by like five or six people. And then, like, that's, and I like to start businesses like that. Like, I have a, a concept called uh, Articulate, which mm. is like articulate, but coffee, latte, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there's so like many it. good ideas no there's honestly it's it's the life of an entrepreneur i find myself i was doing random entrepreneurial things from when i was 14 till now and every day i wake up with a new idea and it's it's tough i was actually having a conversation with founders of a web3 company called sphere one yesterday and you know during the conversation it was it's more friendly than business but we're it just every five minutes it was like an idea for a new product which is hilarious yeah. because they're building something and you just think about it, you're like, well, I mean, this product's cool, but I might as well just start doing this. So it's it's entrepreneurism is hard and easy in many different ways. It's easy in the fact that you're doing something very passionate, but it's hard in the fact that you're like just stuck with all these great ideas and to do them. Part of part of being a passionate entrepreneur is finding other passionate entrepreneurs like yourself that can work on these things with you. Yeah. And so, like, you know, that's when I find someone like that. I, I sometimes I don't even know what business they could run, but I almost like I want to put you on hold for a minute. Like you're great at what you do. I'm going to find a place for you. You know, like one of my businesses or something that we've invested in just because it's hard to find really good, passionate people that are leaders at the same time. Uh, but it's also exhausting. How do you avoid burnout? Because we see that in crypto a lot too. But I have a very similar story with burnout. Um, I luckily avoided it, but so I was working... I was finishing college still um, during that 2020 bull run. I'd finished during it. Uh, and that's when I was running my consulting agency. I was taking 16 credit hours over at Keenan Flagler Business School at UNC. And I was managing trading markets at the same time. And it was exhausting, especially during COVID. Uh, you know, it made it a little bit easier being cooped up in my room. So I just always had my computer in front of me. But there sure. was, I was doing 16-hour days for probably 18 to 24 months at some point, managing the bull run, managing consulting, managing building models, and managing classes at the same time. And at the at the end, 2021, December, um, I, I was just like, I need, I need six months. <laughs> I need yeah. six months of just nothing. And honestly, it's the best thing that I could have done. Avoiding burnout and giving yourself time allows you to reflect, see what you are passionate about, find your happiness, and be able to put your full conviction and 100% into building something that you enjoy versus just you know continually grinding, grinding away until you're just burnt out completely. And then you know it's hard to reflect. It's hard to see what you're doing wrong and what you're doing right. And I think that not enough people can noticing they're burning out and just 
can take a step back. It's one of the hardest things to do, especially, especially when you realize it in the moment and you feel handcuffed. It's like, I can't because I haven't closed. I'm one of those people. I can't relax. I can't take a vacation. I say I can't. By the way, by the way, side note, saying the words I can't and I shouldn't are really bad in general. And I, and I try to not do that. But I struggle, I should say, I struggle with take, relaxing when I have ends that are not closed off, like loose ends. And I need to learn how to be able to just like pause and save them for later and then just chill out for a little bit. But I think a lot of people struggle with that same thing. Yeah, it's normal. I think the anxiety of overburdened <laughs> hanging over your head, like I need to finish this. I mean, I, I have stuff always like that. And I, you know, I feel like if we look at it as we're always going to have stuff over our head, so there's no point to stress about it and just to create tiny goals each day to get them done, then, you know, you kind of get rid of that anxiety. Like I have tax forms and other tax responsibilities I have to submit to my accountants that I've been putting off. But I think that looking at it better as, you know, if I do this today for an hour and then tomorrow, you know, I'll have it done in seven days and then. Maybe one day I just crank through the whole thing just from looking at a small goal perspective. And at least yeah. in my mind, I'm convincing myself, you know, I got this small goal done today. I can get the next small goal done tomorrow and remove that anxiety from burdening me. Yeah, you're right. Like making sometimes making lists, just making lists and writing things down that I have in my head to do. It makes things a lot easier. Well, thanks for teaching us that. And thanks for thanks for coming on the show today. Don't forget about the oatmeal situation. <laughs> I'll look into it. I'll uh, I'll have my people or I'll contact my people, see what they can do. And then my people contact your people. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time and coming on the show today. Thanks, my listeners. If you like the show, please leave a review or hit subscribe. Thanks to everyone. And I appreciate you. And, I, and I'm happy that we met. And I hope we can work on some cool things. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me on. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>